Tespa in my DeLorean. War's over, I'm a peacetime Mandalorian. The story is dumb, Star Wars historians deep in debate, but they play at Benegas. Welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer, a bounty hunter, and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. You can find us at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. We have a fantastic show for you this week. Stephen Garrett will make his triumphant return to our airwaves to talk about the new Joel Cohn adaptation of Macbeth called The Tragedy of Macbeth. Yes, Macbeth is still a tragedy. It is not a comedy. Also, Paula Schaefer will be here to talk about a couple of TV shows, Ghosts and How I Met Your Father. But first, Scott Gold is back to talk about The Book of Boba Fett, the new Star Wars show on Disney+. Boba Fett has his own TV show now. He has crawled out of the pit, and we're very happy to see him. We'll be right back to talk to Scott about Boba Fett. Like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we live in an endless Star Wars universe now, and our Star Wars correspondent, Scott Gold, is back in the pages of Book and Film Globe this week, writing about the new Star Wars series, The Book of Boba Fett, which has now played four episodes on Disney+. Plus. Hello, Scott. How are you? I'm doing great. Always happy to be here, Neil. So uh, I've been watching the book of Boba Fett as well. I'm uh, an 80s kid and, you know, Boba Fett, I had my Boba Fett figurines like every 80s kid did. And it's kind of amazing to me to see Boba Fett. Well, A, he survives the Sarlacc pit that he gets thrown into at the end of Return of the Jedi. And then he has his own TV show and he's the hero. And the show is, I mean, it has its flaws, but it's kind of amazing at the same time. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's just so wonderful and gratifying to get this story, which is a Star Wars story in all of the, you know, seemingly infinite universe of Star Wars story. He's the one character we still never really got to know outside of, you know, novels and comics and things that weren't necessarily canon. That was always the the thing that drew people to Boba Fett was this mystery. Like, who is this guy? Uh, we did get to see him as a child in Attack of the Clones. We got to see, you know, him deal with his his father's death at the hands of Jedi Master Mace Windu. But we never really got to know Boba Fett. We never got his story. And the fact that we're getting it now, like 40 years later, it's so cool. But the problem is the ideas of the character that have built up in our minds over all these years is never going to equal whatever Favreau, Filoni and Robert Rodriguez and their wonderful team are going to come up with. But that said, uh, I think the series is super fun and it's just so cool to see. Well, yeah, but it fills in a lot of a lot of narrative holes of the Star Wars saga. I mean, I thought that Boba Fett as a child stuff was incredibly cheesy and unnecessary in, in the, the prequel trilogy. But this this stuff is all it feels like it fits in with the original Star Wars so well. I mean, there's there's so much um, sand people time. We get to see the uh, Tusken Raiders in their natural habitat 
and we get to see, you know, fa- favorite monsters like the Rancor get their due. And it flushes out Tatooine really well. We get to see the Cantina Band again. And, you know, some people have uh, criticized the show for being overly nostalgic and returning to the same setting over and over again. And we, we've seen a lot of Tatooine when there are infinite numbers of planets in the Star Wars universe. But I don't know. I mean, I feel like it works really well and it, it feels very natural and it's it's a lot of fun. It really is. You know, Tatooine was the first planet we really got a feel for in A New Hope, the very first Star Wars film. So a lot of us are naturally attracted to that planet. And I find it really funny when Luke is talking to C-3PO and C-3PO asks him, you know, where are we? He's like, well, if there's a bright, shiny center of the universe, you're on a planet that it's farther from. Now, that said, seeing how much time in the Star Wars universe has been spent in Tatooine, you would think that it's the center of the universe, right? But we do get a sense of it and a deeper feel for the planet and its inhabitants that we've never really gotten before. And something that the show does really, really well is delve into those characters and races and communities and really humanize them in a way that hasn't happened before. Even like what we called as kids, the pig guards, which are the Gamorrean guards. There's a wonderful sense of empathy, like we even get to know them a little bit better. We learn to know that they're loyal bodyguards. Boba Fett takes them on after they've lost their job working for Jabba and then for Bib Fortuna, who took over Jabba's throne. And Boba Fett decides to spare them and give them a job. And now they're his most, you know, loyal bodyguards. And it's pretty, pretty cool to see these kind of almost comical looking green pig guys get a more human backstory, even just a little bit. And the show does that with other things, too, like the Rancor and most especially the Tusken Raiders, who since the their initial depiction in 1977 uh, have become kind of a problematic characterization of these nomadic Bedouins, essentially. And what the show really does is get into their tribal society and humanize them and show that they're not just these literally faceless monsters roaming the desert and attacking and killing people and scavenging. No, they're more they're more depicted as displaced Native Americans almost. They're displaced Native Tatooine residents who predate any of the uh, other races that came to the planet, and you get this sense that they've been there for eons. So that's very interesting. Now, the the show is like The Mandalorian, kind of a spaghetti western. Boba Fett is this crime boss with a heart of gold who's busting into saloons and who is staging raids and fighting various factions. It has a very old school Western feel, almost like a spaghetti Western. Oh, very much so. And the showrunners and writers of The Mandalorian were the first to admit that it's very Sergio Leone, very spaghetti Western inspired. And it's really interesting that if you go back to the character creation of Boba Fett, he was supposed to be the original Star Wars Clint Eastwood man with no name, good, bad and ugly character, which is one of the reasons that people were really drawn to him. That and the iconic armor with the T visor and that backpack with a big missile sticking out of it, just everything about his character design and the fact that he was relatively silent throughout most of the original trilogy really made people invested in wondering who this guy was. He's so cool looking. Yeah, he's not silent in the show. I mean, he's still kind of quiet and deliberate, but he does speak a lot. And uh, the actor who plays him, it's the same guy who played him in The Mandalorian, uh, Tamora Morrison, who's a veteran New Zealand actor, you know, and like, as you pointed out, the cast is not young. I mean, Jennifer Beals, uh, Ming-Na Wen and Morrison are all either 60 or pushing 60. And yet, yet they're carrying the show in an entertainment world that's really like worshipful of youth. And even, um, you know, David Pasquese, you know, this is a guy I was, I was doing improv with back in Chicago in the 90s. You know, this is not a young cast. 
It's not. And, you know, for old Star Wars nerds, I mean, not that old. For us, you know, selfishly, it's gratifying to see older actors really not just getting their due, but they're absolutely killing it, too. Tamora Morrison is fantastic, and he's very physically, without, you know, even without the helmet on, we see a Boba Fett that's just as imposing and intimidating as he is with that iconic armor. Yeah, he's a real uh, he's a real side of beef. And people have talked for years about, you know, Ming-Na Wen not, not aging, and I always thought that maybe she had a, a portrait in her attic that's aging terribly. Like, what on earth is she doing? to look that great for so long. But I haven't seen Jennifer Beals in a hot second and she is just a 100% smoke show. She looks fantastic and kills the role of Garza Whip that she's in is this kind of upscale club owner that has to be very political in order to do her business. Yeah, she has those long, um, those long like tendrils coming off of her head. What's that race called? Those are Twi'leks or Twi'leks. They've definitely gotten a lot more due than they got in their introduction I believe in Return of the Jedi, one of them was, you know, Slave Dancer. And they do hark back to that in the series. And they hark back to so many different things. You were right. Like this show is so filled with Easter eggs and callbacks that fans will just absolutely love. But I don't think it's to the detriment of the show itself. I think it just enhances it for Star Wars fans. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, although we need to talk about the uh, most problematic and and let's face it, worst aspect of the show, which is Boba Fett's uh, Vespa robot person biker gang that, <laughs> that that appears in episode three. And boy, boy, have they been divisive. Uh, yeah, as uh, Pete Townsend once said, I think it was no, it was Keith Moon who said, uh, yeah, they're going to go down like a lead balloon. <laughs> they're like the power. They're like Power Rangers. People have made, been making comparison to Power Rangers, you know, to Quadrophenia, because they're literally I mean, they call them the mods because they modify themselves with cybernetic uh, body parts and implants. Uh, but it's clearly a nod to 1960 London mods with the Vespas that have like all these mirrors and and there's a place for that in the Star Wars universe. Like we know that George Lucas is very enamored with California car culture in the 50s and 60s. This goes back to American graffiti, but it does not really work well here, like at least not on this planet. Like there's a very, very stark difference between the mods and their culture and their you know bright, shiny bikes and their bright, shiny chrome. And this relatively, you know, dingy, dusty, dirty desert planet, alien planet, whereas this, yeah. these people, they feel like they're lifted from, I don't know, the Matrix or Streets of Fire or, or some, you know, or some other, uh, you know, sci fi franchise. I mean, whatever. It's fine. It's funny to see them. Cool. I mean, there is a cool fight with the big black Wookiee. <laughs> black Kersentan. Yes, we now know how to pronounce his name. There we go. So, you know, there's all kinds of stuff in this show and it's, it's a it's a big grab bag. Uh, the one thing I wanted to uh, to discuss before we, we signed off here is the uh, incredible theme music from this show by Ludwig Gorenson, who also did the theme music to The Mandalorian. But I, and that was very catchy. But I feel like this is even catchier. It's so good. The music is just so great. I've watched documentaries on how he uh, made the music for The Mandalorian, and he really did a great job with finding a thematic, like a similar theme to the Mandalorian while not doing the exact same thing. And a lot of people are pointing out, and I, I dug into it myself, that the musical theme for the Book of Boba Fett is a direct homage to a Swedish movie from 1984 called Ronja Rovers. I believe it's Ronja Rovers' daughter. I 
sorry, I don't speak Swedish, but it's really wonderful to call back to that musical heritage of his because he's Swedish and and it's still, you know, it fits us immediately into this world. Music in Star Wars has always been very, very important. And I think he knocks it right out of the park. Yeah, it's sort of a, a Swedish cowboy choral thing going on there. It's a, it, it does, it works great. And, you know, I, I have found myself humming it while walking down the street or walking around the corridors of my home. It's going to be with us forever. And the Book of Boba Fett is airing now on Disney Plus, and I'm guessing it's going to be back for a second season. I can't see that they're going to they're going to let this franchise go so easily. You know, I have no idea what's going to happen, but I am really happy to be along for the ride. I believe, you know, Ming-Na Wen has hinted that uh, the finale of the series, which is only going to be seven episodes long, is going to be very emotional. So we can read into that as much as we want. But despite its, you know, its few flaws, I mean, there are small things like for some reason, Tamora Morrison has really blindingly white teeth and it's kind of distracting a little bit. But Well, he takes that bath. He takes the healing bath. Uh, in the back to tank, and maybe that is just really good for for dental. It care. must be. I actually rewatched some of the Mandalorian where he we first encounter Tamora Morrison's uh, Boba Fett in one of the later episodes of season two of the Mandalorian, and his teeth were white then. But uh, that said, you know, for all of the little nitpicky things we can do, and we always will do as deep died in the Wampa Wool Star Wars fans. The show, I believe, is really successful on a lot of levels. And for the most part, it's a lot of fun, which Star Wars is supposed to be. Agreed. All right, Scott, may the force be with you. Right back at you, Neil. since I've talked to Stephen Garrett, but now I'm talking to Stephen Garrett again. It's good to be talking to you again, and uh, especially about something like this, which I think really deserves a conversation. You know, I, I, I don't want to say I didn't enjoy it because there's a lot of stuff to enjoy, and it's also Macbeth, which is always going to give you a baseline kind of thrill. Um, but it didn't really succeed or work for me in the sense that I actually saw this a few months ago at the New York Film Festival, and it just didn't stick in my mind. It didn't really linger. I didn't really think about it again uh, until writing this review, having that occasion to kind of revisit it and really think, why, why didn't this stick in my head? And there is something a little uh, bloodless about such a bloody source material. It's pretty stiff feeling. You know, I, I just finished watching this as we're talking and there's a lot of dead air which is kind of surprising. There are a couple of moments, you know, there's the scene where Macbeth's people raid Macduff's compound and, you know, throw his kid into a fire. They're the final sword fight. But, you know, it's the problem in general with um, Shakespeare adaptations is no matter how good they are, a lot of times it just feels like community theater. You know, even if it's being directed by by Joel Cohen, I mean, it's not like there's not some interesting stuff in here. There are some cool shots and the witches turn into birds, which is kind of fun. And the the, the woman who plays all three witches is very weird. She's perfectly handled, but she's not in it all that much. Yeah, no, she's in it no more or less than, you know, in in the play and in other film adaptations. And uh, for me, it begs the question, why do this? Like, what is it that's compelling 
Joel Cohen to do it and what's compelled other filmmakers to do it. And I think other adaptations have fared better. You know, I mentioned Orson Welles' one, which is very similar to this. I don't know if you got a chance to to watch yeah. a little on YouTube, but I've seen it's, Orson Welles' Macbeth and they're both in black and white and they're both very sort of shadowy and impressionistic and full of fog. Full of fog and they're done on a studio set. Clearly everything is very spare. Yet I, I there's something about Orson Welles's treatment of the material it feels a little more supple, more alive, like he's a little more engaged. He's a little more interested in what every character is saying and not necessarily just the main characters. There's a real strength to it and and drive to it that is kind of lacking from here. And, you know, of course, Polanski famously made Macbeth after Sharon Tate was brutally murdered. And a lot of people speculate and maybe Polanski himself has said that he was going through a lot of cathartic, painful, you know, emotions and thoughts when he was making Macbeth. And it shows his Macbeth is really out there. It's wild. But he also had uh, what was it? Kenneth Tynan was was writing the script with him. I, I feel like he had a Shakespeareologist on on hand to help him decipher what is the best, most dramatic way to present a line of dialogue or have an actor do it. And I just don't feel like Joel Cohen was quite as invested as as those guys were. You know, no, there's there's a detachment from the material, which, you know, is highly emotional. I mean, I, I feel like you got a pretty good sense of the politics uh, involved. And I did think that um, they portrayed Macbeth. I, I hadn't seen it done quite this way before. You know, toward the end, he's this mad autocrat who's murdering people en masse. And it doesn't doesn't make him look good. But it, But as you pointed out in the review... The switch for him and Lady Macbeth from being these like staid middle-aged nobles to these crazy rulers, it kind of flips quickly. There's not a lot of transition time, especially with Francis McDormand. Yeah. Lady Macbeth, who at one moment is all buttoned up, and then the next time you see her, she's completely nutso. Completely. And I feel like that's a matter of degree. You know, I, I like the other adaptations didn't handle it quite as hysterically by the end, you know, um, or at least kind of built up her character. So it was a little more believable when it switched. And it's odd because Francis McDormand is such a great actor. I mean, they all are. And Denzel Washington's such a great actor. And for Francis McDormand to go from being so calculating and shrewd and keenly intelligent and, and wicked, you know, in the first parts to suddenly having these hysterical wails and sunken eyes and crazy hair. It just almost made me feel like if she had turned it down just a little bit more, maybe more mournful, then it would have been easier to believe. She does both of them well, but there's no middle spot. Yeah. I felt like, you know, Denzel Washington has been, I saw him do uh, Richard III in Central Park in 1990. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm, I'm that old. But so he's been doing Shakespeare for a long time and clearly can handle the material. But I I don't know. I felt he, he felt a little flat to me in this. Except maybe at the end, at the end, he starts to um, he Denzel's it up a little bit. I couldn't agree with you more. Like in the first part of it, he, it just felt like he was running his lines. I mean, even bad Denzel is still good Denzel. I mean, you know, Denzel is, is a really magnetic, charismatic guy. But it just didn't feel like he was as engaged as he was towards the end, like you're saying. And, you know, where suddenly it's the training day, Denzel, where he's just got this swagger. Exactly. Well, I also felt like, you know, other than Brendan Gleeson, who plays Duncan, I felt like the rest of the cast was pretty flat. Although I, I, I like the one guy who played um, Macbeth's murderous henchman. I thought he had some some interesting. Uh, right. And again, like you just it just didn't transport you into anything. I mean, the sets were very flat, almost like a German expressionist movie. I think the whole thing is a very, very 
professionally done package. And I say that in the sense that these are these are people who have spent their whole lives, you know, making film and acting in film. And, you know, the cinematography is magnificent and the and the digitally rendered set designs, you know, they're kind of digital extensions and um, they're done in incredibly ravishing, sumptuous ways. But, you know, almost to a fault where it kind of reminded me of those 1980s uh, Chanel number no. five ads where everything is a little too symmetrical, a little too designed, you know, with the human element kind of uh, on the margins. And to what end? And yeah, like the guy, Joel Cohn's been making amazing movies with his brother for decades. I totally I think everybody deserves a break. Everybody deserves to, to mix it up a little bit. And maybe this is this for him. You know, I could see his brother just saying, what's the point of doing this? And Joel saying, well, I want to change. I want to do something different. I have some ideas. So, you know, if he's clearing his throat, if it's a palate cleanser, you know, more power to him. It's a it's a fascinating sort of exercise. But I, I just wish I loved it a bit more. Well, it is an exercise. And that's the thing. And obviously, like, you know, I, I love the Coen brothers as much as if not more than most people. But this just to me felt like an academic exercise, like an assignment almost. And because of that, I, it, it felt irrelevant. <laughs> And I hate I hate it when people say it's not a bad movie. It's just an unnecessary one. And I wouldn't say that, but I would say that, you know, this movie does not have any kind of a popular touch. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I I hate to think that there's a popular and an unpopular touch, but I'd like to say that it's about how engaged or disengaged the director is with the material or, or the filmmaker is with the material. And I think there are moments where Joel Cohen is definitely injecting himself and it's thrilling. And then other times where he's just sitting back a bit and just letting, you know, people park and bark. And he does his shot counter shot of people talking their iambic pentameter and it kind of shrugs and goes, "Okay, let's move on. This movie kind of reminds me of the movie that they would have made fun of in Barton Fink, you know, when they throw to the wrestling picture. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think a younger Joel Cohn would have punctured the pretension in this. This is uh, it's certainly. It's worth watching, but um, you could probably take a 15-minute highlight reel of the best shots and moments. <laughs> and just call and it turn it into a turn it into Chanel number five commercial. Yeah, you know, Lady Macbeth throws open the shutters and shouts "Egoist." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, I forgot that commercial. That's a good you know, one. I'll never forget. I'll probably <laughs> shout that on my deathbed. All right. <laughs> The Tragedy of Macbeth is airing now on Apple TV+. Stephen Garrett, thank you so much. We will talk to you soon. That pleasure as always. Paula Schaefer is here, our frequent contributor and very uh, entertaining film critic. She has a couple of pieces up on the site this week. She uh, reviewed the new uh, sitcom How I Met Your Father, which takes place, I suppose, in the How I Met Your Mother universe. Hello, Paula. Hey there. Thanks for having me. So you suffered through How I Met Your Father. I, I, did they just air the pilot on Hulu or they, is it, have they dropped every episode? They did a four pack and they're going to be 10. And maybe only 10 based off of your review. So the I, the concept is the same as How I Met Your Mother, right? You got a bunch of sort of rosy cheeked late 20, early 30 somethings living in Manhattan, living and loving incompetently. Yeah, pretty much. It's it's just a gender swapped how I met your mother. And this is, I think, the 
fourth time they they tried they tried it three other times and it failed and this time they were like we're just gonna do it meaning they had three other pilots yeah that they worked on and scrapped yeah it was like first called how i met your dad and then it became how i met your father then how i met your father and now there it is also how i met your father Mm -hmm. now you know you were a fan or at least a viewer of the original How I Met Your Mother. And as you point out in the review, you, you couldn't dismiss the fact that it had you know a very top-notch cast for its generation. You know, Neil Patrick Harris, Allison Hannigan, Jason Siegel, Kobe Smulders, and so on. It was one of those shows that it succeeded because of the cast, not because of the quality of the writing. Oh, yeah. It was just your standard laugh track CBS show, but it was on for a really long time. And like you said, I I think it's because it came with actors who were already established and beloved. You know, people love Jason Segel from Freaks and Geeks and Allison Hannigan from Buffy and Neil Patrick Harris from everything, really. Right. Although this this show was sort of the start of the Neil Patrick Harris renaissance. Like he was he wasn't sort of the the multi-talented multi-hyphenate America's favorite singing, dancing gay dad that he is now, right? He was still like kind of Doogie Hauser, And then this came along and sort of cemented his reputation. Yeah, he was he was so he had that Doogie Hauser like affinity that people had like, oh, I remember that guy from that OK show a long time ago. And how how I met your mother was it was not the best show ever made, but it's very watchable and it's very it has its own language and it's funny enough catchphrases, songs, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas How I Met Your Father, you have Hilary Duff, who I suppose is recognizable to people who watched the Disney Channel in the 90s or 2000s. She was Lizzie McGuire, but she also was on Younger for six seasons with Sutton Foster. And that was, that was a pretty good show. That was pretty solid. She's likable. She's a, a, a reliable TV actor. And then you have a bunch of sort of, I, want, I don't want to call someone a no-name. I mean, I'm a no-name, but not well-known sitcom actors. Correct. I, I think the second best known would be uh, the person who was on Glow. Oh, the guy who played the producer on Glow. Christopher Lowell. Yeah. All right. Well, I suppose that is someone who has been on TV. But I, but here's the thing. Like, for, for, I have not watched How I Met Your Father. And I do not intend to watch How, How I Met Your Father. I'm very, very busy. But uh, <laughs> your review doesn't exactly make it sound like it's it's going to it's going to like take off like How I Met Your Mother. I I don't know how it could, except that, you know, maybe people are just desperate and want to really like it and want it to be better. Or maybe people who don't know the original and are just like, I guess this works. I guess this is what funny is. I don't know. Um, you know, Kim Cattrall is the is the bookend character as the the mother who's telling the story. People who tune in to see her for 30 seconds, I, I'm i not sure. I, I don't know how it could keep working. And this is airing only on Hulu, right? Correct. This is not a CBS show. I feel like if it was a CBS show, if you put a show on CBS, it gets 7 million viewers just by being on CBS. And CBS is thrilled and they order 40 seasons of it. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, you know, Bob, Bob Hart's Abishola will run until we're, until we're dead. Um <laughs> even though I don't know anybody who watches it. But, you know, something hiding on Hulu. I mean, it's it's rare that a show really breaks out of Hulu. Yeah, I would agree with that. Especially a sitcom. I mean, yeah, you have your occasional, like, Handmaid's Tale. And I guess, you know, The Great has its fans uh, on Hulu, but I wouldn't exactly call it, like, a household show. You know, and I guess also, like, the thing about How I Met Your Father is, like, it, it's set in 2022. 
in New York City in 2022. And from what I gathered from the clips I watched, it presents the city as like this, you know, glowing, normal, yuppie paradise where people are just dating and having a good time and having little misadventures. Whereas everyone I know in New York, you know, paints a much different picture of a of a grim city on the decline where, you know, where people are battling over face masks and, you know, the hospitals are overcrowded and and crime is, you know, at an all time high. I'm guessing how I met your father is not um, does not exist in that reality. No, in that universe, there was never and is not any mention of covid that is just a, a no people are not hiding <laughs> i mean I, re- I realize that like a lot of tv shows are taking that approach but it just feels like a show set in modern day new york it, it it's such a disconnect from the reality on the ground that i i can't i can't see anybody in new york thinking oh yeah this is what it's like here now and i don't see anybody out, out of new york caring yeah, exactly. Just just set it five years in the future and pretend that, that COVID's over. I mean, who cares? That's what it's I do. In 20- That's what I do. <laughs> That's how I live. All right. Well, How I Met Your Father is on Hulu. Now approach at your own risks. Stay safe. Meanwhile, um, your other show that you reviewed this week, you gave a much more positive uh, write-up to. And that is that is a show that is on CBS. It's called Ghosts. And I don't watch a lot of network TV, but... It's uh, NFL playoffs time. So I'm on CBS more than usual, and I'm seeing a lot of ads for ghosts. And as you point out in your review, it's kind of this is a show that's kind of picking up steam. It is. It's it is the top rated new comedy that debuted this fall. And it's getting like six to seven million viewers an episode, I believe. And that's like double what other networks it comes are getting right now. Yeah, and that, that's a that's a tremendous number in this day and age. And, you know, the premise of the show is that these two people, buy, they buy a house, right, that has ghosts. They inherit it. They inherit it. They inherit a house. And the house is inhabited by all these different ghosts of these people who, who lived there or lived nearby. I mean, I, I don't quite. They died there. The premise is where you die, some people stay as ghosts, and, and that's where they just stay. They can't leave a certain perimeter. It feels like a lot of people died in one house. Well, it's, it's people from over hundreds and hundreds of years. There's a Viking. There's, you know, an, an American Revolutionary War general. There's uh, a Native American. It's over the course of hundreds of years, people who died in that general vicinity on that tract of land. Got it. And it's based on a British sitcom that is also very popular, apparently. Look, it's very high concept, but I mean, I, I admit that I hear that. And I'm, I, if I were a network executive and someone pitched that, I'd be like, all right, write a script. <laughs> Why not? It's a, I mean, it's, it's a decent idea. And the funny thing about the show, as you point out in your review, is that these people's lives and mannerisms and manner of dress stalls out when they die. So Matt Walsh is playing this robber baron character who's always twirling his mustache and, and, and cackling gleefully, you know, about exploiting the workers. You know, the, there's a character who doesn't wear pants because he died without pants. Yeah, there's a pantsless character. So it it kind of goes <laughs> with with that. You know, as as a viewer, they've really got to keep things going on to keep viewers watching people in the same clothes over and over again. It makes it kind of cartoony by its nature. And so that that announces it as a fun and different kind of network show. And there are these like historical culture clashes going on 
Yeah, they kind of, a lot of them have kind of stalled out in whatever uh, antiquated views they had that at the time of their death that were modern views when they died. Like the the woman who originally was one of the owners of the house, house has like a, a horror of women who wear pants and work and want to drive a car and want to vote. And, you know, then the American revolutionary guy who is played by Brandon Scott Jones desperately wants to like be remembered through history and he can't stand it that Hamilton is the person that people remember because Hamilton was his rival and his art, you know, his like arch nemesis. Isn't the joke that he like died of syphilis before he could get to go sign the Declaration of Independence? He died of dysentery. Dysentery. Yeah. And he, he was supposed to sign the Declaration of Independence, but he got there too late and they'd already closed the doors. So he missed it. I mean, that's just funny. Yeah, it, it's really goofy. It's just this very light, little silly, gentle sitcom that doesn't fit in with anything else that's on CBS, frankly. Um, and there it is. Doesn't that often, isn't that often how shows become hits, though? You know, when you're not chasing a trend, when you're just doing something that idiosyncratic and fun that, that uh, people enjoy. Yeah, and it it is enjoyable. I didn't really expect it to be. I found out about it uh, because one of the showrunners is from, I'm from this really small town in Pennsylvania, and one of the showrunners is from a nearby small town. And, you know, like uh, my cousin posted about it on Facebook because they mentioned the area that we're from. And I was like, ghosts, what's that? And then I saw Rose McIver and I loved iZombie because that's the kind of lady I am. So I wanted to see it. And I was surprised that it was very watchable. And this is this is this is how hits happen. You know, this is how things things emerge. It plays in Peoria, and then it <laughs> gradually it's kind, of like, kind of like we talked about Yellowstone last week. You know, everybody I know in the poker rooms was talking about Yellowstone two years ago. They're like, "Oh, everyone's watching Yellowstone." Yep. I'm like, "I don't know anyone who's watching Yellowstone." And then now suddenly, every literally everyone's watching Yellowstone. And I feel like Ghosts is following that same trajectory where it, whereas, you know, the little old ladies who watch everything on CBS uh, started and then they started posting about it to social media and it's gradually like gravitated outwards. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's 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 not going to change anybody's life at this point. I mean, maybe it will become a life changing show, but it's it's enjoyable and diversionary and it and it's you know, it just does its own thing. And that's kind of nice to see. I admire television that doesn't try to change anyone's lives personally. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes it more fun when it's not trying to do a big thing and have a big impact. Television is supposed to be stupid and watchable. That's the whole point. All right. Paula Schaefer has written about TV again for us and we'll write about TV again and again and again. And uh, we sure like having her on the podcast. So, Paula, we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks a lot. A man in my shoes runs a light and all the papers lie tonight, but falling over you is the news of the day. All right. Thanks a lot, Paula, for watching TV so we don't have to. Also, thanks to Stephen Garrett for talking to me about the tragedy of Macbeth and to Scott Gold for appearing to talk about the book of Boba Fett. We will be back next week with more discussion of the hottest cultural topics in the known universe and the Star Wars universe and the Marvel Cinematic Universe and whatever other universes you inhabit. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the host of this show. You can find the site at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Thanks for listening. Oh, no.
Original Production.